Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Guess what, Lions? For as little as $5 a month, you can get access to exclusive bonus audio content and help this program grow by joining the Lions of Liberty Pride. To learn more, head over to lionsofliberty.com slash support. I hate these filthy neutrals, Kiff. With enemies, you know where they stand. But with neutrals, who knows? It sickens me. (sighs) What makes a man turn neutral? Lust for gold? Power? Or were you just born with a heart full of neutrality? Welcome to Electric Liberty Land, here on the Lions of Liberty podcast. Your weekly shot of culture, comedy, and liberty with your host, Brian McWilliams. What is going on out there, my neutrals? What does fill a man's heart with neutrality? That's the question at the top of all of our minds right now. And the conversation on the tip of our tongues. Yes, welcome to Electric Liberty Land. Brian McWilliams with you here once again for this episode, which is episode 48, which means you can find that at lionsofliberty.com forward slash ELL48. You can find all of the show notes there, as well as links to our support pages, links to the Lions of Liberty store, where you can buy fantastic Lines of Liberty, she-shirts, koozies, short shorts. No, we don't have short shorts. We should have short shorts. God damn it. Why don't we? Got to write a letter to the uh, to the John Odermats of the world about that. Going to have to put that in the store. Anyway, welcome to the show, guys, on this Wednesday morning. Or whenever you might like to listen to it. Maybe you're lazy like I am. Maybe a little afternoon listening for you. So, today's show, we are going to talk about net neutrality. Uh, I got a request in it on our forum, which is over. If you just go to Facebook, put in Lions of Liberty Forum, it'll pop right up there for you. No problem. And, uh, you know, we've got a lot of interesting conversations, one of which was, of course, about net neutrality. And I was asked to give a take on it. So what I'm going to try to do is I'm going to try to break it down in a very simple way that is easy to explain to people who may or may not be drunk in a segment that I like to call Bar Talk. Cliff, explanation, please. Now, how do you know he has one? Five bucks says he does, ten says it's a doozy. Maybe it's a beer talking, Mark, but you got a butt that won't quit. They got these big chewy pretzels here that are all you beers, you know, five dollars? Get out of here. Net neutrality, get out of here. That is basically my response to this. So let me lay this out. Because what I'm going to try to do, again, is, is explain it in the simplest terms with the most effective points from my point of view so that you can share this knowledge with the world. Now, first and foremost, things that everybody needs to remember is that net neutrality did not exist before 2015. Original Bush, Bush, Bush 43, tried to push it through. It was slapped down. And then we went into that wonderful period of time where we had the explosion of the Internet as we know it today. That means it went from being this antiquated, uh, very seldom accessed service, 
which only a few people could really uh, get to or afford or have the infrastructure to provide for, into this explosion where everybody had it. You had the rise of AOL, which some people have a problem with, and this is AOL was widely attacked for having a, uh, a monopolistic relationship with the internet. But at the same time, look at what's happened to AOL today. It's completely fallen to the wayside. It no longer provides more than maybe 10% of emails to people. And those are like the, the elderly who, who don't have the, uh, the capability to, to understand Gmail, uh, I guess. But you had this, this monolithic entity, which say what you will about it, did provide internet to a massive amount of people. They basically commoditized the internet and offered it at a price point, like $20 unlimited a month or something like that. And you see those CDs everywhere. But $20 unlimited a month, anybody could get it if you, as long as you had a dial-up connection. From there, we saw the demand for internet increase exponentially. You had people introduce new services. You had people get into the fiber business and you had, you had these, uh, these services pop up with the T1 lines, which I first encountered in college because my parents weren't early internet adopters and I'm older than most of you probably. But you have all these high-speed services come out that again, T1 lines were only available to a very small amount of people, typically in colleges or somewhere they can afford that infrastructure. Now we have exceptionally fast internet service everywhere. How did this happen? Well, it's because of the infrastructure that was put into place by cable companies, by fiber companies, by other other individual private institutions that wanted to make money. So remember that. All of this, all of the internet as we know it, not the necessary, not necessarily the creation of the internet, but the internet as we know it, the accessibility, all of the variety, all of the platforms for social interaction, those all come from innovation provided through this explosion of growth which existed before any sort of net neutrality. Now, people say, okay, what, what's the whole deal with net neutrality? Why is this a big deal? What are we actually talking about? Well, what we're talking about is regulating the internet as a public utility. That's where all of this comes from. So what happened is that under Title II, the Obama administration pushed through net neutrality, which essentially made the internet and internet providers, ISPs and the companies that, that are backing them, they changed them from an internet system, or I'm sorry, an information system, which is what cable companies are considered. It went from information system to now a public communications. And, and basically the, the, the delineation here is that the Title II protection, the Title II regulations applied previously to phone service. They were considered a public utility. They were considered a communication system. And so they were regulated by the government. And what this meant in a, in a lot of different, a lot of different things go into it. But basically it means that there were a lot more restrictions placed on what they could or couldn't do. It also means that they had an open system. And what that translates to is that these phone systems that were put into place widely by AT&T uh, and Mob, you know, Pa Bell, Ma Bell, they allowed competitors to tap into that wire line because they said it was a public utility now. And so it had to be available to everybody. So your competitors would get to hack into that line. Now, they tried to do this with the internet as we know today, with the ISPs and yada, yada, yada. So since that's happened, I don't know about you, but for me, what I've noticed is that my internet is even more expensive than it was before. 
I'm paying something like $110 a month because I'm getting the fastest internet service available to me. And it's still just, you know, it's whatever. I, my streaming comes through. Sometimes it breaks up. Sometimes it doesn't. But it comes through for that price of $110 per month. I'm not happy paying that uh, that kind of money out of my pocket every month. But really, I don't have many options. Why don't I have many options? Well, we're going to get into that in just a little bit. Now, before we get any deeper, I want to address some of the uh, the objections to taking away the regulations of net neutrality. So people are creating these straw men arguments. And that's what really we need to do. We need to burn down these straw men because all these, uh, these progressives, all these people in government, and even the tech giants who are also campaigning for net neutrality. And the reason that they're campaigning for net neutrality, by the way, is all tied into this concept of the fast lane and tied into the concept of making content creators pay to enable you to have faster service. So let me tackle right off the front this, this, let me tackle the first straw man. And that is that every single opponent of a free and open market system governing the internet likes to bring out the straw man. There's basically two straw men. The one straw man that is the easiest to debunk is these people that say they're coming to attack our free speech. And then they go on, like, for example, the Electronic Frontier Foundation which is an organization that I had a lot of respect for previously until I saw them stumping for net neutrality and using some of the most idiotic examples I've ever seen in my life. So, for example, they say that, you know what, we can't have these uh, regulations removed because what, the, what these ISPs are going to do is they're going to, to crack down on free speech. They're going to stop you from accessing websites. They're going to make content providers pay extra or, or they're going to shut down these other websites that don't pay more. And this Electronic Frontier Foundation article, which I linked to in the show notes, which again, you can find at lionsofliberty.com, E-L-L 48, goes on a rant. And this rant basically says that the social media explosion has re rejuvenated and, and caused this insane amount of a conversation and interaction and innovation across people of all kinds, all shapes, forms, etc. Okay, is that true? Yeah, <laughs> I, I agree with you there. Okay, you got me, Electro, Electro, uh, Electronic Frontier Foundation, pardon me. You got me on board. So... What's the downside? So, okay, we're saying these social media platforms are so vitally interactive in our lives that we can't live without them. I agree with you. The article then goes on to say that these ISPs could take them away or censor them or crack down on them. And, and how, could we, how could we allow them to threaten free speech in that way? Now, this is where... I'm pointing out that these straw man arguments exist. And this is what all of them are about, saying that these ISPs are going to go out of the way to censor material, to censor content that is critical of them, because it doesn't happen. It simply doesn't happen. Do you know why it doesn't happen? Because any company that you're paying money to have internet access, that it came out via a competitor, via a news organization, or via anything else, if it came out and said, oh, by the way, Comcast has been shutting down websites or search results that talk about this or that. Or Comcast is blocking you from accessing Facebook. How long do you think they're going to last in the marketplace? 
Monopoly or not, not very long. Not very long at all. It's just, it's one of those things where you go, how can you even make this argument and not understand how ridiculously silly it sounds? I mean, my God, you really, somebody, you go to accessabc.com to get a news story and it says blocked by your provider. That day, that minute, you pick up the phone, you call them, you say, here's what you're going to do. You're going to unblock that site or I'm going to cancel my subscription. And I'm going to tell every other person I know about this. And they'll do it lickety-split. That much I promise you. Never in the history of the internet has there been any blocking of things in the United States except by your own employer or your own government agency or whoever else is controlling the information flow. It's not the ISPs that are blocking things from you. And so they talk about this as though this is the impending doom that they're going to crack down on free speech as if the ISPs have any interest in doing that. And then people also like to forget this because I remember very distinctly reading many stories about ISPs already blocking sites. And that's under net neutrality rules, which exist right now. But they don't do it under the auspices of, oh, we're going to crack down on these people because they're not paying their bills. They don't, they don't, Facebook isn't paying us more money, so we're not going to allow that content to get through. Which, again, if, you're, if your Facebook wouldn't load, you'd immediately be on the phone yelling at them. So that would never happen. But you already see people getting their sites uh, rejected from ISPs. You look at the right-wing sites. You look at these Stormfront uh, organizations from these Nazi orgs. They're getting booted off ISPs. They're getting booted off Google. So where is the left outrage over that? Where is the lefty? Where have the lefties been in this era of net neutrality where it exists saying, hey, what about free speech? How dare you kick these people off their ISPs? How dare you deny them access to the internet? Well, it's because they don't agree with them. <laughs> but it is interesting how this outrage is very selectively placed. Selectively focused. Another example of a, uh, a ISP, well, actually, well, Google's not an ISP, but a, a content company being this censorship organization is, okay, of course, you look at Google. Google censoring people's content by demonetizing it, essentially assuring that nobody's going to see it. Because when you demonetize that content, it doesn't rise in the rankings. It doesn't, it doesn't show up as much. People aren't making money off it, so they're less incentivized to create that content in the first place. You're, at, you're basically attacking their way of living. And this isn't just for right-wing sites. This is like the Rubin Report. We've had videos. The Lions of Liberty have had uh, YouTube videos demonetized. Now, granted, not many people watch our videos necessarily. It's more of an add-on for us to the podcast. But tell your friends. They're up there. They're on the YouTubes. But even we've had videos demonetized because of talking to somebody that Google didn't like. So you've got the content creators who are against repealing net neutrality, they're censoring people all the time anyway, using their terms of service and everything else. So it's a, it's a very hypocritical position that they're taking. And the hypocrisy doesn't end there because, okay, so let's say that's the free speech thing. In a free market where you've got people that have ample amount of voice and no shortage of places to express themselves in this day and age, you will never have an ISP censoring a site or slowing down a website that people really want, like a social media site, to the extent where you can't load it or, or intentionally blocking it. It's never going to happen. 
So that's straw man number one. We've set him ablaze. Let's turn to straw man number two. And this one tends to be, I think, a bigger one, even though, you know, it's funny. You see all these all these progressives and, and these pundits talking about free speech is like, that's the big issue. That and saying that, oh, well, they're going to they're going to hack up the Internet. They're going to hack up the Internet offering, which I also find ironic because these same hipsters, <laughs> same hipster douchebags that are calling for how terrible it would be if the internet were segmented in this way, as far as the way you receive your data and the speed you receive your data for different services, like say, I've seen a graphic going around, like this is Portugal. You pay $5 a month for social media access. You pay $40 a month for video access. You pay whatever else for uh, your email access. All of which, by the way, if I added all those services together, basically what I'm paying right now, monetarily. But they cheer the fact that the cable companies, who they hate, the cable companies are getting attacked by services that are providing, what? what? What's that? Oh, service tiers. Just like the worst case straw man scenario that they're providing. So you got progressives saying this is the worst thing that could happen is that you could have these service offerings where you'd actually break up the usages for the internet and have people offering tiers of service for internet like they do in Portugal, I guess. And meanwhile, the best thing to ever happen to them on the other side is the fact that they don't have to pay for cable anymore and they can get different tiers of service and different tiers of channels and different stuff like that from their content creators. So literally, they're arguing for the exact same thing, but they're opposing it on one side and they're all for it on the other side. Again, hypocrisy and ignorance. So let's move on to this concept of the fast lane and tiered service. So... Basically, again, this is a worst case straw man. This is an Al Gore style straw man saying that, uh, that you know, everything's going to come tumbling down and everything's going to be more expensive and terrible for everybody. So essentially what they're saying is that if we repeal net neutrality, that what we're going to do is that we, we're going to have the fast lane and everybody else is in the slow lane. Now, let's, as a concept, look at that. Essentially... What they're saying is that you would have companies like a Netflix or like a Hulu or let's say any number of large data packet heavy companies that need to have access to fast high speed data. You would provide them, if you're an ISP, with their own fast lane. And that fast lane essentially would be like a toll road. Like, for example, for me, if I'm driving from L.A. to San Diego there's a toll road. I can pay an extra $10, not even, it's like $1.25 each way. That cuts about 40 minutes off of my drive. That to me is well worth it. And you know what? The city makes that money back. They built the road. Who will build the toll roads? Well, the city built this one. So, or the county or whatever. So I pay them. I take my $40 cut off the drive and I'm very happy about it. And a lot of people do it. Meanwhile, on that toll road, despite it being only $1.25, there are a vast number of fewer cars. I mean, it's like you cut it down by about 70%, which is great for me because I fly down that toll road. And whether or not it's intentional, it's also not as policed. The police stick to the main roads. So that's a win-win. Because now, not only is the main road having less traffic because people are opting to take the toll road, but the people who opted to pay more to access that toll road are getting to the destination much faster. 
the way that these people like to present it is not in this win-win scenario, which is what it would be. Because even with the internet, you've got these data-heavy companies that say, okay, let's create a fast lane, right? The ISPs create a fast lane for them. And by the way, private fast lanes already exist and people already do pay for them. For example, I used to represent a company called SohoNet. They provided high-speed fiber cabling, like T3 speeds, up to, I'm sure it's even more than that now, probably 100 gigabytes a second, but exceptionally high-speed fiber cabling and this would be for the visual effects industry. So if you're going intercontinentally and you're uh, networking in, which all these visual effects companies do now, they parcel everything out. You network that all in. And now you can shoot your, your visuals. You can shoot your shots. You can shoot your special effects all over the place. No problem. They pay a, a premium for that, as would be expected. SohoNet's expending the time and the money to lay down the cabling. Now, they basically, they're... The ISPs, this is how this would work in real life. The ISPs, if they did create a fast lane, it would essentially be doing the same thing. And this is where this logic falls apart on, a, on the part of these progressives and these people that are arguing for net neutrality, saying that everything would stay the same as though, I mean, bandwidth is a, uh, a finite resource. Let's agree on that, as is. But if you have the incentive to create a fast lane, if you have the incentive where you say, okay, we're going to create a specific conduit, which will help these high data packet heavy companies, which are more and more as technology advances, we're going to help them get to this, this destination. There will be an extra emphasis on putting the infrastructure in place to allow that to happen. Now, as is right now, the internet works on kind of this open system where it's, uh, it's packet based and it's where they essentially, the best way to think about it is like train switchers. So you've got a lot of data going down a main track. There's a big data backup. So what they do is they switch off the different tracks. They send a train to the left, a train to the right, trained up the middle. The main track is still the fastest, most direct track. But when it gets backed up, you can divert it to slower tracks, which overall will be faster and overall can keep that data moving at the same rate. That's what happens now. So by creating this fast lane, Essentially, you'd have these content creators or whoever the companies are paying for that high-speed access. So you'd either have somebody create an additional layer of infrastructure to just to go and cater to that industry, or alternatively, you would have it work out in a different way. And this is and, and this is why. Let me go into why this is also a, a straw man that they're creating by saying that everyone is going to get screwed and everyone's internet will slow down. And quote unquote, this I've seen a, a million times. Everybody will get put in the slow lane, is what they like to say. So regarding these lanes, no, everyone will not get put in the slow lane. Because if they did create this, this system, even without an additional infrastructure investment, here's what's going to happen. You're going to have a system wherein internet providers pay for access on their end to keep that speed high. Now, what happens right now, everybody pays for internet at $110 a month or whatever you're paying. We're all paying for the max all the time. So let's say that they did create a specific area where they say, okay, you're going to pay a little bit more and we're going to guide your data through the internet to make sure that it gets to its end receiver at a specific speed. Okay, so you say, well, how is that possible if we've got limited bandwidth? How are they going to do that in the way it exists today? Well, let me tell you how they're going to do it. They already do it. <laughs> do you remember when I was talking about all the different switchers going on? That's what they do. 
So already this is going on. They already have charges. They call it, you know, for peering access. They already do charge these companies extra because they say that, and this is a Netflix thing. I'll read in a little bit, a letter. But the Netflix people and the Googles of the world, this is why they don't like to repeal net neutrality. This is why they object to it because right now, they do pay a little bit of money to get, make sure that their content isn't uh, held up at any place. And what, the way that happens is that the ISPs say, okay, well, we're going to have to expend more resources. We're going to have to put more time into guiding you around any potential backups, which is what happens. And it gets rerouted through these slower networks, copper wire networks, away from fiber. Maybe it's going over DSL networks. So that's already happening. The fast lane already exists. I know that was a long way to go around to tell you that the fast lane already exists, but it already exists. It's already being used because literally the internet would not work without it. You would just have traffic jam after traffic jam. So the fast lane already exists. These companies are already using it. The problem is under the current system, we are all paying for all the bandwidth all the time because there's no way to delineate that. There's no way to chop that up. It's not allowed because you're not allowed to give certain people access to things at higher speeds than other people. Now, if you repeal net neutrality, what you have is you have the ability to say, okay, you, Netflix, you now have to pay extra to make sure your content gets through to people at this certain speed. Now, in the meantime, we as consumers should have to pay less money because Netflix is now paying for that bandwidth, which we're not using all the time. We can now say, all right, well, I can drop my internet service down to $40 a month because Netflix is paying for all the bandwidth I would need ahead of time. By subscribing to them and by agreeing to pay more for that service, let's say I'm paying $13 a month rather than 10 or whatever I'm paying now. I'm fine with that because overall, I can reduce my internet service bill. I'm not home most of the day. I'm out at work, as are all of us. We're still paying for internet all the time during that time because we are constantly made to pay for any possible usage of that internet up to 100 megabytes a second all the time. So what basically what's happening here is that rather than making the, uh, the uh, content creators pay their fair share, they put that all on the consumers to pay for it, to assure that content gets pushed through, to assure that their streaming comes through. Because who do we call? We don't call Netflix when... It, our content isn't streaming correctly. We call the cable companies. We yell at them. This would basically spread the onus out. And I'm all for that. I'm all for fast laning for that shit and paying a little bit more money for it. And on that same concept, like I was saying with Portugal, that seems like a great concept to me. Because, you know, if I'm paying $10 a month for web surfing, $5 a month for social media, $7 a month for whatever, uh, porn and email, and then $30 a month for video, that's still far cheaper for me. And I'm okay paying a little more for the services and sites I use and having everything else go a little slower. Okay, let's move on to some examples here because I do want to talk a little bit more about these other things. So Electronic Frontier Foundation also talks about in another article that we can't trust big tech companies to fight for net neutrality, even though they are against uh, repealing it. And they give this example, which is pretty funny because they say, okay, Google and Verizon in 2010, mind you, this is before net neutrality existed. 2010 made a deal that said, okay, 
YouTube content is going to get pushed through Verizon in a fast lane that they created for that content for Google. What happened? It got reported on. People found out there was a big outcry where people were pissed off about it. And what happened? They scrapped it. Oh my goodness, the market at work. Who would have thought? Who would have thought that the market would play a role? That when people found out, they would call Verizon and they would call Google and it would get reported on, as happens all the time with everything. And they would complain and they would get it scrapped because that's exactly what happened. Amazing how it worked out, exactly how free market proponents and libertarians said it would happen. Holy caboli! In the meantime, let me just say, I didn't even have an issue with that. I'm totally cool with it. If Verizon and Google want to make a deal that pushes through YouTube faster, which YouTube right now is 50% of the internet usage, by the way. (laughs) So again, in what world, YouTube is 50% of the internet usage. I don't even go to YouTube more than maybe once every five to seven days. Yet I'm paying $110 a month for my subscription to uh, to my cable company. 50% of people are using all the internet for YouTube. So yeah, perfectly fair that, that everybody has to pay for that all the time, right? Rather than YouTube paying for a little bit extra. Okay, moving on. That's one example. Then I want to give this example from Netflix. Uh, this is just cracking me up. So this is a letter that Netflix wrote and it's posted on their website page by one of their, one of their, uh, big, big hoopta mooptas. And here's what it says. Uh, you know, basically repealing net neutrality creates two fundamental problems. Allowing fast lanes gives ISPs a perverse incentive to boost revenues by allowing their networks to congest. It also gives them outsized power to pick winners and losers on the internet, which again, editors note, they're not going to pick winners and losers on the internet. It's never happened. It's never going to happen. All right, back to this. Those who can't pay for fast lanes will suffer, entrenching incumbents while undermining the innovative power of the internet. While the largest ISPs have said they're not interested in creating fast lanes, one need only look at how they have sought to monetize their networking interconnection points to get a glimpse of the future. Because how dare they, as companies looking to make profit from the networks that they paid for to put into place, how dare they look to monetize the interconnections? It is at these points where our traffic enters an ISP's network, where Netflix and others have been forced to pay Comcast, Verizon, AT&T, and Time Warner access fees to reach our mutual customers. Without those payments, ISPs allow these connection points to congest, resulting in poor video video streaming experience for Netflix users on those networks. While Netflix was able to meet the demand for payments, we continue to believe this practice stands in contrast to an open internet and all its promise. So again, total bullshit. The ISPs are unquote-unquote allowing congestion so much as Netflix and Hulu and YouTube provide so much data demand, they create congestion. Congestion did not exist to this extent before you had massive video streaming companies coming along, pushing through content in in 4K HD. That's a shitload of data over an infinite or a very finite amount of bandwidth. So, of course, the ISPs have to respond by, by making their people work, by pushing and rerouting these systems through. 
And there's just not enough ways to get the information through without them having to do that. So to wrap this up, what is the biggest issue to concentrate here? So as you can tell, I am for net neutrality. It is simply based upon strawman arguments, which will never come to fruition. By allowing the the deregulation of the internet, you will provide not only better competition, you'll see lowering prices, and you'll see basically more innovation, in my opinion, because you've got companies which now can come back in as an information service provider, not as a public utility. Because think about this. People that are innovating in this space are now have to come in as a public utility, not as an information service or systems provider. That makes it a huge amount of inconvenience to come into it. And with that is so much incentive for profit because you know that you've got hindrances in the way. For example, there's a company called uh, Airborne Wireless Network because everything's moving wireless now anyway. They have a system wherein telecommunications work via laser signal. It's made right now, it's for airplanes, but that's the network, Airborne Wireless Network. But the end goal is to create a wireless network that is created by bouncing signals throughout airplanes that are flying around all the time because there is a huge amount of, ne- of planes. You don't even realize how many planes are in the world all the time in the air. And this system is based on the concept that you can have signals bouncing around, laser systems going on out there that will provide interconnectivity anywhere, anytime by a system of basically low-flying satellites, and it just picks up the system and goes to different planes as they're going in the air. It's a genius idea. That's innovation. To say that we have to stymie innovation and insist that all this, all this becomes a public utility stifles innovation is basically going to stop us from moving forward as is anyway. If you allow the market to exist in an open and free manner, you will have more innovation. You're going to see these cable companies crumble and fall very shortly, I promise you. Just as every industry has done ever, just as AOL did, just as all the big monopolies did in the past for steel and whatever else, because once you have a market where you've got people that are making a lot of money selling one thing, you're going to have other people come in and they're going to try to take bites out of it. All right, that being said, final point here. One of the biggest issues is the monopolies that exist, which are aided through crony capitalism. And the fact that if you look this up, there's a million examples. Over 20 states have laws that literally ban local municipalities from instituting their own local uh, systems of wireless, which could be open access networks if they wanted to. And this is the kind of thing you see in Sweden. You see it in like Virginia's got one going. Now, as libertarians, we don't necessarily advocate for the government to create something like this. But if you're a local state government or if you're a city and you want to create a high-speed fiber network, and everybody says, yep, we're in on it, we want to create a fiber network, we want to give everyone access to it, then you do get a massive amount of competition. That was what an actual open system is. And that is how, if you wanted to create a public utility version of high-speed internet access, that is the best way that you could go about it as a governmental agency. You don't go about it like goddamn Venezuela does, and nationalize private companies' fiber cabling and then say, okay, everybody gets the crack. All right, that hopefully was clear. Hopefully we'll wrap it up. So raise a drink. I'll take a break. I can't believe, you know, I swear to God, every time I try, I'm like, I'm going to make this real short and succinct. Then I look down, it's 35 minutes later. But anyway, hopefully that helped you guys. And uh, we will be right back. Cliff, explanation, please. Now, how do you know he has one? Five bucks says he does, ten says it's a doozy. Maybe it's severe talking. 
I know many of you are facing major decisions with your healthcare right now, and I want to make sure that you know about an amazing alternative to your standard corporatized health insurance known as Health Excellence Plus. Health Excellence Plus is an incredible program that helps you keep medical costs under control by taking charge of your own healthcare and not leaving all the decisions about what doctors you see and what procedures you need or don't need up to some corporate bureaucrat. Along with providing 24-7 access to medical professionals, tax-deferred health savings accounts, and preventative care, Health Excellence Plus empowers you to finally take control of your health care. To learn more, head on over to lionsofliberty.com slash health or call the special hotline for Lions of Liberty listeners at 855-290-4447. Be sure to mention Lions of Liberty. All right, welcome back to Electric Liberty Land, episode 48, everybody. Again, you can find the show notes at lionsofliberty.com forward slash ELL48. Hopefully you stuck around after my very succinct explanation of net neutrality and everything going on there and and why I hate it. What turns a man neutral? All right, so coming back, first story I want to talk about here, only a couple to try to wrap this up fairly quickly, but our buddy Remzo W. Martinez over at the Remzo Republic he is uh, a story that he's been talking about a little bit here, and it involves the Federalist Party. Now, I've been keeping one eye on the Federalists because I found it as an interesting fourth option uh, outside of the Libertarian Party, which uh, I have issues with, with the Democrats and the Republicans. And I was looking at this Federalist Party and saying, okay, well, you know what? They stand for a lot of the things I stand for. And as you guys might have heard, I brought up a few times and debating doing a little bit more in-depth episode on this, but... I think that the time could be right to branch off and start a new party because I think that the negative associations with the libertarianism and the way it's been tarnished in the media and by people like Chris Cantwell, uh, they may have damaged us so much that we say, you know what? It's time to cut bait. It's time to create something new that actually stands for what we believe in that hasn't been bastardized. And I was looking at the Federalist Party as, okay, maybe this is a, a substitute. Well, the shit done hit the fan over there because there is quite the coup going on. I'm going to try to actually sum this up quickly. Unlike my rant about net neutrality, I'm going to try to make this quick. So essentially what's gone on here is that there is uh, this J.D. Rucker was the head of the Federalist Party. And what happened was they were trying to transition via, you know, like forming a board and transitioning from an LLC to a 527 nonprofit entity. And what happened was during this time of transition, a group of three former volunteers for the National Party used the resources of the party to establish contacts and build another organization under the same name. So they used the list, uh, they recruited new board members, and they bought a website with a similar name to the Federalist Party. And basically they changed it to, uh, I think, the new Federalist Party. So what they did was during this changeover, without resigning from the old party, or telling anybody about it, this group of volunteers subversively filed their new paperwork for a 501c4 named the Federalist Party of America, and then sprung their trap. And so I'm going to read this uh, this verbatim. This is what the Joel, hold on one second, I got to scroll up here. Joel Curtinus, who was a party, uh, party co-founder, says. So according to Joel... They called J.D., J.D. Rucker, that is, 
who they knew was still dealing with a family emergency, and blackmailed him using two different copies of a press release. If he agreed to shut down the original website and social media pages for the Federalist Party, they would put out the nice release saying he had willingly agreed to step down for the good of the party, and subtly ceding legitimacy to their coup. If not, they would drop the other press release, which claimed, unsubstantiated, that the party was separating from JD for questionable financial practices, otherwise known as character assassination. So JD Rucker, kind of taken uh, broad, <laughs> taken back by this broadside sneak attack, agreed, and this nice press release went out, and everybody saw it, and they went, "Oh wow!" Surprisingly, so then they went on and they contacted the senior advisor, uh, Pat Nicholas. And they told this woman that J.D. had decided to step down. They're going to put out a press release, and they wanted her to be the spokesperson. She agreed, and then they put her name on the press release along with a quote that she didn't actually say or sign off on and posted it all over the social media groups and sent it out to the lists and everything else. So now they nobody knows what's going on. Confusion's ensuing. They throw, down, uh, they throw this guy, J.D. Rucker, under the bus for shutting down the assets for the social media pages, and now they basically made it look like he's the bad guy. Because they're saying, oh, you see what he's doing? He's playing sour grapes. So even though they put out this press release to, uh, and they said it was the nice version to not assassinate him, they basically come right back and they say, oh, you see what he did there? So it's all crazy. So they've got this background information that they can show this. They've got emails to show that this is happening. But it is shocking to see this kind of thing happen. I mean, I, especially in a newly founded party. I'm just amazed. I'm sitting back and I'm looking at this. And, you know, like I'm saying, considering I was like talking about creating a new party, <laughs> it really makes you want to take a step back and go, you know what? Maybe I'm okay. <laughs> Maybe I don't need to get involved in any of this. Because you see this kind of stuff in this party that actually did have a lot of good momentum building behind it. It had a lot of principles building behind it. And you read this kind of thing. And basically overnight, this party is now destroyed. Like this, this uh, coup that was supposed to be taken uh, from the inside subtly and sneakily to, to depose this guy, J.D. Rucker, has now completely backfired on both sides. So now nobody, like half the people are confused. Half the people know what's going on. Half the people have no idea what's going on. It's like a libertarian convention over here. But seriously, this is just like complete madness. So now... The original founders of the Federalist Party are investigating legal options, trying to see if they can sue them, if they can get back to, you know, get the other trademark under their banner, if the, if the one that the people signed up with originally is still the legitimate Federalist Party, even though they've got the list. That they've, you know, it's, like, it's just all such craziness. So I linked to this in the show notes. So if you want to go and you want to see a live political soap opera for a, uh, a fourth party, I guess we'll call them, or a fifth party, if you count the Green Party, then go check that out. Again, you can find that at uh, ELL48 over LionsOfLiberty.com. And uh, we will continue to monitor this because I am intrigued and I am saddened to see this, this soap opera play out in a party that I had some high hopes for. So that is, uh, that's really too bad. Okay, last story I want to get into here is there's, there is yet another soap opera playing out that doesn't involve the Federalists, at least. But this is in regards to the Consumer uh, Finance Protection Bureau. So, as you all know, this was created by Obama and his administration kind of in the wake of the financial collapse, which, again, was the government's fault. 
I did a whole bar talk on that as well, which if I remember to, I'll link to in the show notes. But that was basically breaking down Dodd-Frank and how this is all caused by the government. It was through government programs and the government uh, government organization, which is pushing, pushing through low-income housing and affordable housing, and basically said, we will underwrite any and all loans and encouraged all these banks to go out and make these subprime loans. And the government was all for it. And they said, we'll take on all of it. We'll back you all up, which is why Fannie and Freddie were the ones that took took a lot of hits, as well as all these other banks. But again, government cost. Anyway, getting back to the main point. So Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, created by Obama, given a unbelievable amount of power to regulate, to get in the way to, and to obfuscate because it's, again, it is, a, is an entity which was created by the president, which owed allegiance only to the president, essentially. I mean, it really was created as a standalone organization that wielded massive unilateral power. So there were some Republicans uh, that had said, hey, you know, we should really have a board that handles this. It shouldn't just be a director and the director is in control of all of it because there's way too much power that's being wielded here that can impact such a massive area of the economy and of businesses. So the Democrats told them to go stick it up their ass because Obama was in charge and they didn't want to give up any power. So what we have is a director that has essentially a fiefdom that he or she can rule over without virtually anybody saying boo. So you fast forward a few years. The former head of the consumer... Financial Protection Bureau resigns. So what happens in that week? So now you've got Trump in office. You've got the hand-picked head of the bureau under Obama resigning. And he leaves a woman named Leandra English. So she is, of course, a legacy employee of the Obama presidency. She is the second in command. So she says, hey, I'm in control of this bureau now, of this agency. Meanwhile, Trump's budget director, Mick Mulvaney, comes in and literally walks in with two big things of donuts, donut diplomacy, as they call it, walks in with two big things of donuts and takes over the former director's office. And they both send out at the same time, they both send out memos to all the people in the uh, Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. They all send out memos. They say, I am now in control. Here is what we're going to do. The employees have no idea what to do. They're just looking at going, okay, well, this is confusing as hell. Meanwhile, I just have to lean back and laugh because the Democrats have basically put themselves, they put this organization in jeopardy of Trump coming in. And if Mulvaney is the one that ends up being declared the winner, and right now it's with the U.S. Uh, District Court judge who was a Trump appointee. So likely, I, I am a betting man and I would gladly put $50 on it, but likely he is going to rule that Mulvaney, as being able to oversee the budget and having this, this broad oversight in the position as a, as a member of the cabinet, he will be able to say, I'm going to take over this organization, or he will be able to appoint a new bureau head, or Trump will be able to appoint a new bureau head. Considering Obama created this organization out of nothing and then declared someone the director, why would Trump not have the exact same authority? There's nothing that says that the assistant director gets to automatically take over the bureau when, you know, and, uh, and then just can continue on her merry way for infinity. But again, this what's so funny about this is this is a problem caused by the Democrats' own arrogance, their own stupidity, and their own political horseshit. I mean, this is literally, this is falling on your own petard. 
which if you don't know what a petard is, it is a small explosive device. And, uh, you know, from people planting them and you fall over on it and boom, you fall on your own petard, you'd be dead. So they've created this, this massive agency that wields crazy amounts of power with no oversight, without any board, without any senators sitting on anything that can oversee it or question it or slow it down. And now you've put yourself in a position with this director resigning where Trump can just put someone in place and say, all right, everything that they did, completely undo it, put it towards my side of things. And every four years or every eight years, that's what's going to keep happening back and forth and back and forth because of this short-sighted stupidity. And this is what I can't stand. This is like the point I want to make about this. Never mind that this idiotic bureau should not exist at all. Never mind it's another entity that's been created where the people have no input into it whatsoever. Another unelected bureaucratic entity which wields massive amounts of influence that was created as uh, basically as an executive power, as an indulgence in arrogance, as Obama was so wont to do. Never mind that. But let's just look at the fact that this is the latest example of lowering the bar and just completely screwing things up for all the consumers out there. Because you look at not just this, but what's happening in Congress, what's happening with all of this, this political back and forth in the Senate, where, where they keep lowering the bar. They say, okay, well, now as Republicans, we have complete control, so we're going to rewrite these rules. And the Democrats, when they had complete control, they say, oh, we're going to rewrite these rules to make it easier to pass legislation, to make it impossible to filibuster something. Do you know who that helps? Nobody. It helps the people in power for a short amount of time. And who gets screwed by it? The American people do. Because while we have representatives that are supposed to be representing our best interests there, supposed to be arguing against these laws, and really, I'm all for laws taking as long as possible to pass. I want the most gridlock that can ever happen. Because as soon as both these sides agree on anything, I know that I'm going to get screwed. They both have their own special interests at heart. They both have their own power at heart. So when you see them lowering the bar for how easy it is to pass things, all you're going to get is terrible laws pushed through or terrible agencies like this that don't even have to put laws through to go ahead and push through essentially edicts with the power of law that can completely fuck your business or fuck any number of other things. That's what I hate about political gamesmanship. And that's what we need to stand up against and say, none of this. No more changing these rules willy-nilly. No more the power that, you know, the power uh, party gets to change the rules and dictate all this shit because all it does is screw us all over, guys. All right, that's it. Another incoherent episode in the books from me, Brian McWilliams here at Electric Liberty Land. Guys, remember, please do give us a review on iTunes. Please share the show. Please do follow us on Twitter. At Lions of Liberty, follow me at Brian McWilliams. And make sure to check out those t-shirts, lionsofliberty.store. If you're interested in joining the Pride, that is awesome. We do a whole gener- uh, Degenerate Gamblers podcast. We do extra content. We do extra drinking shows. That's all the good stuff you get at the Lions of Liberty Pride, which you can just go and join by going to lionsofliberty.com forward slash support. Yep, that's going to do it. So from me, Brian McWilliams from the Lions of Liberty, From Electric Liberty Land, always stay plugged in to liberty.